Let's learn, let's learn, let's learn. We are on page 144 is the beginning of the Parsha, Parsha's Vayetze. We are actually going to focus on the second story in this week's Parsha. Let's just catch ourselves up to where we're going to be focused on. At the end of last week's Parsha, which we did not learn with together, through together, the very end, Yaakov steals the bracha from his older brother, Esav. Esav is, of course, very displeased with the turn of events and uh, desires to kill Yaakov. So Yaakov's mother, Rivka, sends, together with her husband Yitzchak, sends Yaakov to her brother Lavan, who we met a week or two ago. They send Yaakov to go away from Esau. He'll go find a wife back from the land from which they all came from, go back to Haran. And that's how our Parsha ended last week, with Yaakov on his way out. Our Parsha, the first story, which we're not going to be addressing again this year, is the famous dream story in which Yaakov falls asleep and he has a ladder and there are angels going up and down the ladder and uh, he has a vision of Hashem and he makes a neder, he takes a vow that if Hashem will protect him as he's now on his way out of the land of Israel, he's going he's going outside and if Hashem will protect him and bring him back safely, he will certainly continue to observe everything. I'll give a tenth of all of my things. It's a beautiful whole description. There's much to talk about. We'll do that, Mirz Hashem, in another year. The, the dream, the, the, the messages of the dream, the vow that Yaakov takes, that's all that. What we're now going to do is talk about the dramatic scene at the well. We know, of course, that if you're looking for a shidduch, where are you supposed to go? Everybody knows you go back to the well, and you go back to the well again, and you go back to the well however many times you need. That's where all the good girls hang out. Everybody knows that. So we're going to have another well scene play itself out in our Parsha, in which Yaakov is going to see for the first time his beloved Rachel. So we're going to learn through the Psukim, and we're going to learn through Yaakov's reaction, and then Yaakov's future father-in-law, Lavan, who is, of course, his mother, it's his uncle Lavan, it's his mother Rivka's brother uh, Lavan, the father of, of, of Leah and Rachel. We're going to have, we'll learn a little bit about their reactions during this dramatic scene. So let's, let's study it inside... <coughs> Page 146 uh, is where we're going to pick up our story. The beginning of Perak Choftes. On the bottom of the page, um, Pasuk Aleph in chapter 29. Everybody see where we are? At the bottom of page 146. So Yaakov picks up his feet. This is after the dream with the ladder like we spoke about. And he heads off towards the east. And he sees the well. And there are three flocks of sheep that are near the well. I'm going to read the Psukim quickly to get to our story, and then we'll slow down for a little bit. I'm just going to read through. So he gets to the well, and there are three different shepherds and three different flocks. Why are there, and they're just sitting around. And why is that? Because there's a large stone on top of the well. And then the Torah gives us a little bit of the story. Because when all the flocks would gather, then they would remove the stone from on top of the well. And then when they were done, they would put their stone back. Meaning, this was a very valuable well. Water, of course, was a very uh, pricey commodity. And so in order to protect all of the shepherds, to make sure that nobody was taking too much at inappropriate times, so they had a pact amongst all of the shepherds that they would put together this huge rock 
on top of the well so that no one or two shepherds could move it away at any one time. And when everybody would gather, then together the shepherds would be able to move the, the, the rock from the top of the well. And when they would finish, they would be able to put the rock uh, back. Yaakov says to them, May I not tell where are you guys from? And they say, we're from Haran. Ah, Haran, amazing, Yaakov says. That's where I'm headed. That's where my uncle Lovan lives, where I'm supposed to now go stay. So Yaakov says to them, Hayidatem as Lovan ben, in Pasuke, verse 5, Hayidatem as Lovan ben Nachor? Do you know? Do you know my uncle, he says to them? He doesn't actually identify himself as a nephew. He just says, do you know Lavan ben Nachor? They say, sure, we know Lavan. Everybody around here knows Lavan. Not only that, they say, in the next Pasuk, excuse me, I jumped the gun. So Yaakov says to them, Hashalom lo. Remember those days? It's hard to remember the day before email, right? Before texting. So they say, Yaakov has no idea what's doing with his uncle Lavan. He probably hasn't seen him in... For years, right? It's been a long time that he's seen his uncle Lavan. And it could even be forever. Could be they haven't seen each other since Rivka left to get married 20, 30 years uh, prior. They're married for 20 years before they have children. And now the boys are all grown up. It might be 40 years that Rivka's been out of, uh, out of uh, the house. And it's very possible maybe they didn't get together for the holidays. We don't know if they've ever seen each other. So he says, Hashalomlo. How's he doing? They say he's good, he's fine, everything is well with him. And not only that, they add, Rachel His daughter Rachel, that's her. She's coming with the flock. We're waiting for all the shepherds to gather. She was a shepherdess. She was the one in charge of the flock. And that's her, she's coming. Then we have a fascinating interlude right now, which dis- deserves its own sheer, which is not for this year. I'm just going to point out the next conversation is really something that needs understanding. Vayomer hein gadol. Yaakov then says to them, we're like in this dramatic moment. And if you were, if you were writing the script of this play in which Yaakov gets to the well and he meets the shepherds and he says, do you know my, my uncle Lovan? And they say, yeah. And is he good? He's well. And that's, that's his daughter, Rachel. <coughs> Excuse me. This should be the moment, this dramatic moment in which he's about to lay eyes on Rachel for the first time. And it's going to be a dramatic moment, but, but Yaakov gets distracted. Right after they say, she's coming. He says, hey guys, it's still broad daylight. There's a lot of time left in the day. It's not time to bring the flock in for the night. Go give your flocks to drink and go back out and shepherd. Like, who are you? Like, Akko's a new guy, just shows up at the well. We're about to have this dramatic meeting and beforehand, he like, he gives it to them. Like, why are you sitting around doing nothing? This requires discussion, not for I'm just pointing it out. They say, we can't until everybody gathers together and we can remove the stone. Test, Pasuk test, verse 9. They're still speaking. Rachel makes her way there. She was a shepherdess. Torah says, <coughs> excuse me, I picked up a cold in Eretz uh, Yisrael. 
when Yaakov sees Rachel Bas Lavan, you thought I was going to bring back spirituality. You thought I was going to bring back something meaningful. Nah, it's just, just a call that brought back. Sorry. When Yaakov sees Rachel Bas Lavan, he sees Rachel, the daughter of Lavan, Achi Imo, Lavan being the brother of his mother, meaning his uncle, the Eston Lavan Achi Imo, and the Kflak Vaigash. Here we're going to go through all the different reactions Yaakov's going to have. Vaigash Yaakov, he approaches. And he removes the stone from on top of the well. The same stone that all the flocks that just said, the shepherds that just said a moment ago, we can't give to drink our flocks yet because not everybody's here. We're not big enough. We're not strong enough. They're not enough of us. We can't. So the first reaction Yaakov has is one of superhuman strength. He's so moved by the moments, by seeing Rachel, he pushes it away. And he gives the flock of Lavan to drink, seeing that this is, this is his uncle's flock. So he does that. That's number one. So a show of strength is, is reaction number one. He gives Rachel a kiss. And then he raises his voice and he cries. Right, here's the reaction. First he kisses her, then he cries. Now, let's just stop for a moment because the next Pasuk he's going to introduce himself, which means at this point, at the next Pasuk, I'll just read it for now. The next Pasuk is, He says, I'm your cousin. I'm your, your father's nephew. He's the daughter of the son of Rivka. And then she runs to go tell Lavan. So before we get to then Lavan's reaction, when he hears what just happened at the well, this is, let's do Yaakov's for a moment. So before he even introduces himself, he already gives, he does a superhuman strength, he removes the rock, he, he <coughs> kisses her, then he cries. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's start with the last of those, that he cries. Why is Yaakov crying? Everything else here is a moment of... Um, <coughs> A romance, if you will, this this moving of the rock. He's so he's so he's so uh, emotionally moved that he's now invested with this physical strength. He kisses her, but then he cries. Why is he crying? Okay, so uh, a nevuah that this was going to be his wife. But why would that mean? Why should he cry over that? So tears of joy. So we can come up with lots of things. I want to share with you what Rashi comes up with. One is a little bit more uh, pshat-based, and one is a, midr- uh, a medrash, even though both of them are really midrashic. In other words, the Torah gives us no explanation for his tears, which would leave it up to the reader almost. Well, we can come up with lots of reasons why he'd be crying. The emotions he might be feeling, the fears, the joy, tears. We don't know why. The Torah does not tell us other than he, lift up his, he lifted up his voice and he cried. So the sages were very uh, piqued. Their interest was piqued by this, and they say two things. Number one, more of a medrash. The sages say, Yaakov saw Beruach HaKodesh. He saw with divine inspiration that indeed this would be his wife, but they would not be buried together. <coughs> and from the very moment that he lays eyes on her, he sees that we will be in life for eternity, but we will be separated 
in death. Because, of course, in Marasa Machpelah, where Yaakov will be buried, he'll be buried with Leah. But where is Rachel buried? So we all know Rachel is on the way to Beis Lechem. She never makes it all the way in. And Kever Rachel Adayom until today, remains as the place where we go to Davin. But she's not in Marasa Machpelah next to Yaakov. And therefore, as the second wife, because of course he marries Leah first, later in the parsha when Lavan will do the old switcheroo. There's so many things to talk about in this parsha, we're not going to, can't get to everything. So as the second wife, she's not the one who's going to be buried next to him. Even though we all know, Torah makes it very clear that she was the love of his life, and he's not going to be buried with her. Very, very Jewish thing that like the first time you meet somebody and you're like already crying and, not over the life that we'll live together, but that we will not be together for eternity, to be buried together. And that's what he cries about. That's what Rashi tells us. That's why he was crying. Then he tells us a second reason why he was crying. A little bit more of a, of a pshat. He said he was crying because what's supposed to happen in this dramatic moment when you meet your intended at the well? What are you supposed to give her? So we all know, right? There's the, the watch or the ring. There's like the whole, whatever the routine was in those days and in our day, there's like something supposed to happen when you meet the intended for the first time. It happened last time we learned about this when the Avram sent his servant Eliezer to find Rivka. What did he give her at the well? The bracelets and there was gold and there was silver and there was jewelry. Ten camels laden with goods. There was a lot of stuff the Torah describes that Eliezer came with when he met Rivka at the well. And now this is the next generation. This is Rivka's son, Yaakov. And when he meets Rachel, so he's crying. So the sages fill in. You know what he's crying about? He's empty-handed. He has nothing to give Rachel at all. Now, why should he have nothing to give Rachel? It would seem that when he was sent by his parents, they certainly sent him with some things. He shouldn't... So, so the, so the Medrash fills in, the sages fill in the following story. You might be familiar with this story. When Esau sees that Yaakov was sent away, so he didn't let him get away like just for nothing, even though he wasn't going to do anything himself, all, as long as their father Yitzchak was alive, Esau says, I'm not doing anything. But what does Esau do? He sends his son Eliphaz. What the Gemara tells us. He sends his son Eliphaz after Yaakov and says, catch him and kill him. So Eliphaz does. He catches up with Yaakov at some point, And he says, uh, I'm supposed to kill you now. My father sent me to kill you. But I have a problem, Eliphaz says to Yaakov. He says, on the one hand, my father gave me a command. And if you remember, we have, well, again, there's so many things we'll talk about. But at some point, there was one mitzvah that Esav was well known at as far as excelling in the one mitzvah. And that was the mitzvah of Kibbut Avaim. And uh, therefore, <clears throat> Eliphaz was raised in a home where the one mitzvah that his father did was keep, my father gave me a command to kill you. I'd like to fulfill my father's wishes. I need to kill you. On the other hand, you're my uncle Yaakov. You're my uncle. I, I, I'm, I'm a grandson of Yitzchak. I'm a great-grandson of Avram Avinu. I can't kill you. So I don't know what to do, Eliphaz says. My father told me to kill you. I can't. So Yaakov gave him the following suggestion. Yaakov said... Take everything that I have from me. There's a principle the Gemara uses in a number of different places. The uh, Ha'ani, a person who's destitute, poor, is chashuv kemes, is considered, is likened as if he's already dead. So you'll take all my possessions, you'll take everything that I have, and therefore, in this halachic concept, I'll be considered as if I'm already dead. You won't have actually killed me, but you'll have fulfilled your father's request, 
And that's what they do. So that when Yaakov now shows up at the well, he's literally with nothing. Clothing on his back is all that he has. And so he cries, I have nothing to give Rachel, my, my, my father's servant, Eliezer, had lots of gifts. I have nothing to give you. So he cried. <coughs> We're going to get back to this. This is going to be relevant to the next second half of our story. But what's the idea? Just parenthetical. What's the idea that an Ani, a person who is poor and destitute, chashuv kemes, very strong language the sages use, and they use it in a number of different places regarding this concept. Why, why should that be? I just want to share with you briefly, a, the Maharal makes the following comment. And he says, I'll, I'll translate the first two lines and then we'll talk a little bit about it just for a moment. He says, an Ani, a person who's so destitute, we're talking about real destitution here, literally having nothing, he has no life from himself. All things that are alive are self-sustaining. They have what they need from within themselves. And this fellow is tzarech lezulos, needs someone else. He cannot live on his own. And someone who cannot exist on their own needs sustenance from someplace else, therefore doesn't have the essence of chayim. This is a very difficult and a deep concept all at the same time. It brings a couple of examples. First of all, he says, we use the word chayim in two interesting ways. The most, when, you, when I say the word chayim, you would say, translate it. To life. Right? To, alive, to life. L'chayim is to life. Chayim is life. We use it in two places that wouldn't seem to fit. One... As what? Beit the cemetery. Okay, that's the, the opposite, right? right? We call it Beit Chaim. Um, one is, do you know what we call a wellspring of water? A natural... Be'er Mayim Chaim. A natural wellspring is called a Be'er Mayim Chaim. It's not alive. Why, does it, why is it called a Be'er Mayim Chaim? So the morale says, because what, what does that mean? What kind of wellspring does that refer to? And, and where it, it sustains itself. It's a, it's a wellspring that the spring of water will always perpetuate. I don't have to wait for rain. I don't have to provide it and seal it and catch the water and dig a hole. It is a natural wellspring that will just continuously run and provide water. That's why we call it a Be'er Mayim Chaim because it's self-sustaining and doesn't need any outside force to give it its life. You know what the other odd place where we use this? We say this phrase a lot, and every once in a while it, it like jars, like that's a strange phrase, but then we like move on in davening. It comes up in davening a lot, so we don't really stop to think about it. We often refer to Hashem using many names. One of the names that we call Hashem is Elohim Chaim. Elohim Chaim. Such a way, Hashem is not alive. By definition, when we talk about things that are alive, to be alive means there's going to come a time when you die. Right now it's alive, but it will die. Plants, animals, people, we all, everything alive. We're limited in time. That's what it means to be alive. Why do we call Hashem the Elohim Chayim? It, it, it almost goes against the usage of the word chayim, but it's always, it's going to be chayim v'kayim. It's a strange phrase every once in a while. So the Moral says, no, 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 you know why we call it Elohim chayim? Because chayim means 
self-sustaining, and it needs no outside force to exist. That's why Hashem is referred to as the Elohim Chaim, because He's the God of, of, of the essence of Chaim. We use it to refer to us as we live and breathe on our own, but at the source of it is actually where it doesn't need anything. It's, it's on its own. We spoke about before, I'll just quickly reference, that's why also Shlomo Melech says in Sefer Mishlei, Sone Matonos Yichia, one who hates gifts, Yichia, will live. Now these are not the gifts, not like anniversary gifts or birthday presents, those are gifts of friendship. I mean gifts of where you, you, you get something, you know, you hop here, you try to get something for free here, you don't want to earn this, I want to, you know, we have all sorts of shenanigans sometimes to try to figure out a way to beat the system, so to speak. And Shlomo Melech says, no, 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 Sone Matonos, one who hates freebies and gifts, what word does he use? Yichyeh. He'll live in the sense of it's from within. I don't, I don't need things from the outside. I don't want freebies. I don't want to be support. I want to support myself. It's a value system of I want to come from within because that's most godly. Just like Hashem is a Chayim. So, so too, I, I, I don't want matanos. I don't want gifts. I don't want freebies. I want to be self-sustaining so that I could be most like Hashem. I could be, and therefore, going all the way back to our point, so what do we have? So when Yaakov says, take all my stuff so that I have nothing, so that's why the sages use the language of chashiv kemes. He's viewed in halacha almost like he's already, he's alive now, but he needs so much help from the outside, he's not self-sustaining. Therefore, you have that idea. Okay, on to the next point. The next point of our story. So Yaakov cries. He cries either because he sees he's not going to be buried with Rochel. He cries he's empty-handed. He has nothing to give her. But she then runs and tells her father, Lavan. Let's now go through part two. What's Lavan's response to this? Bottom of uh, Pasuk Yubes. Towards the bottom of page 148. When Lavan just hears the name of Yaakov, the son of his sister, he runs to greet him. He gives him a hug. He gives him a kiss. So he brings him to his house. And then Yaakov has to tell him everything that happens. Okay, let's put a, we'll stop here. Before we get to the next part of the conversation, Lavan hears Yaakov's name. He runs, he hugs, and he kisses. Now, what does Lavan remember? Lavan's like, I've seen this story before. At the well, somebody comes looking for a wife from, my, from my, this part of the family. What, what does Lavan remember happened last time, 40 years ago, when Eliezer showed up? What did he show up with? Oh, a lot of stuff. So as soon as Lavan hears that his daughter, Rachel, has come home and said, Abba, you're not going to believe who I met at the well. I met Yaakov ben Rivka, your sister's son, has come. He runs. So Rashi points out, what's he running towards? Money. Money. The money. Now there's a fascinating thing. The word rats, to run, shares the same shorish, the same basic word as one of the most important words that we have in all of Jewish thought, and that is ratzon. Ratzon means that which I want or desire. Why should it be that the word rats and Ratzon share those letters 
Because if you really want to know what somebody wants, you really want to know what somebody cares about, you really want to know what moves them, take a look and see to what do they run. And you'll see what really... Where is the person? Present company, of course, excluded. I will just mention, like, for example, let's say a person's going to the movies and it starts at, oh, I don't know, let's just make up a time. Nine o'clock at night, eight o'clock at night, whatever it is. And you know that the beginning of the movies are just previews, meaningless stuff. But a person runs to get there on time. I don't want to be late. And then, like, two days later, shul starts. And it also starts at, oh, whatever time. And, like, and whatever, I get there. It doesn't matter. It's fine. You know, I'm not, present clue, I'm not telling anybody here. I'm just saying, there, there, are, there are events. Now, if like, if like, for example, like, if you run to get here at 12 to make sure you get the exile and tuna fish versus 12.15 just for the sheer, like, what are you running for? What moves you? Which things in life are the things that you say, I have to be there. I want to be there. If you want to know what the person's truest and deepest desires are, so take a look and see what really gets us up out of our seats to do something. And, and then whenever we find ourselves running for something, always ask, like, why am I running for this? What about this has gotten the fire lit underneath me because it's important? Some things are, it's important to know what I mean to say is what's driving us. Sometimes they're very good things that are driving us and sometimes there are not such good things that are driving us. And if they're not so good, then it's worthwhile to identify it and say, wow, I didn't realize I was so into whatever that is. And is that really where I want to be or is it not? But running always is a, a litmus test of something that's going on that is of deep importance to me and worth always exploring. So Lovan runs to see Yaakov and the sages see that he was after the money. Now, I want to read a Rashi with you and then learn a maral that tells us how to read a Rashi, how to read when the sages say something to the depths of what they're saying. So Rashi says as follows. You may be familiar with this. This is on the list of um, uh, Rashis that are taught in schools. It has, like, it has that kind of uh, appeal to it. So let's take a look at the Rashi and then let's read it as, uh, as adults, as the Maral teaches us to do. So Lavan runs, says Rashi. Um, if you want to read it inside with me, I'm in the last three lines on the left-hand side of the Rashi. Lavan thought he must be bearing money. He must have a lot of cash and goods and gold and silver and bracelets because his, his father's servants came a generation ago with 10 camels laden with goods. It must be he's got lots of gold. So he runs to see him. What does he see when he gets there? He's got nothing. Not just a little bit. Not just one camel. He's got nothing. Why does he have nothing? It was taken from him by, by his nephew, by Eliphaz, Esau's son. He literally comes with nothing. What does Lavan do? What does the Torah say after he runs? He hugs him. Says Rashi. Why did he hug him? Rashi says, When Lavan saw that nothing was with him, Omari said... Shema zehuvim hevi. Maybe he has gold. Vehevi vehinam becheko. They're in his, like, in his bosom, in his pocket. It's like in his clothing. So he gives him a hug. Yaakov, how are you? So nice to see you. As he, like, sort of pats him down to see, 
You know, maybe that's where it is. Well, what did he find? Nothing. Nothing. What's the next thing Lavan does? Kisses, kisses. kisses him. Says Rashi. Why does he kiss him? Says Rashi, Vayinashiklo Omar Shema Margolios Hevi. Maybe he brought pearls and precious stones. And they're in his, in his mouth. So he searches. Maybe that's where they are. And what does he find? Nothing. Nothing. Very next pasuk. So the next phrase is, so Vayasaper Lila, Yaakov tells Lavan everything that happened. He says, I, I, I don't have anything. And then the very next pasuk is, and so Lavan says, Ach, nu, okay, like what can I do? You're my family, come, you'll stay with me. I, I, okay, you brought nothing. Nu, nebuch. All right, your family, I'll take you in anyway. Okay, let's go over this Rashi. Because this is a Rashi that we could read as children, or we could read it in, in great depth. The sages are saying an amazing thing here. Lavan runs to see Yaakov and he sees nothing. So he gives him a hug, because maybe he's got, he's got the goods. He doesn't find anything, so he gives him a kiss. Maybe it's, it's buried in his mouth, and nothing. So it's a cute uh, you know, progression, and it's easy to remember. And I, just, I want to share with you a morale who says that there's, there's great wisdom here. And it's not as simple as, you know, loved ones just sort of patting him down and trying to find the hidden gems. The morale explains as follows. When a person has uh, wealth, or really any material value, there are different ways in which a person uh, carries themselves when they have something. The starting point of that discussion is, I come with 10 camels laden with goods. What does that represent when I show up at the well with 10 camels laden with goods? When I show up at the well and I park my camels, what am I announcing to the world? Look at me, everyone. I got the goods. It's, it's a display of wealth that says, it's open for everyone to see. I want everyone to know what I got. Not any special relationship that I have. I announce it publicly. So Lavan sees or hears really that Yaakov has showed up. So he runs to see him expecting that I will see just like my, the story before Eliezer that he came Display. Eliezer very much wanted to show that his master Avram was a wealthy person and that they should give her Rivka, that he should be able to take her home, and he comes with everything on display. Everyone sees everything. But Yaakov's got nothing. So Lavan says to himself, okay, no problem. I'm going to give him a hug. Now, again, a simple reading is he's patting him down to see what he's got there. Merle says, I know, but it's so much deeper than that. What does it mean if you have precious gold in your pocket. It means it's not open for everybody to see. I have it. It's just tucked away a little bit. Who does know about that kind of value, wealth, goods that I have if it's in my pocket? Who knows? People who are in my closer inner circle, the people who I'm friendly with, they know what I have and who I am, but I don't, I don't want the public to know. I don't want strangers to know, only those who are closer to me. How do you get into, how do you say that you have a right to know the information that I'm trying to keep from the public? You have to be close. You have to be part of my, my chevra. So what does Lovan do? 
How does he show that? Gives him a hug. Chazal are not playing, they're not like talking like children, like he gave him a hug and he patted him. He gave him a hug to say, Yaakov, I'm your uncle Lavan. I'm not just a stranger that you would display everything in front of everyone. Like anybody who shows up to the well knows what you got. I'm not in anyone. I understand that you don't want to be like that. I understand that you, Yaakov Avinu, are not interested in flouting everything that you have in front of I got it. But I'm not a stranger, Yaakov. Give me a big hug. Come over here to your Uncle Lavan. We have this relationship so that you should reveal to me what you've brought. And what does Yaakov reveal? Nothing. Nothing. Yaakov says, right, I don't have anything. So then Lavan takes the next step. What does he do? He kisses him. And what do the sages say? What was he looking for? Pearls in his mouth. Again, the morale says, read the sages with depth. What does it mean? What's the difference between putting gold in your pocket and putting a pearl in your mouth? The difference is a pearl in your mouth is in the essence of who you are. It's not on the outside of your body just covered in a pocket. It is literally inside of you. And who do you reveal that to? Only to deeper things, right? <laughs> to the nearest and dearest, right? When you read that sages that he like kissed him, He's looking for pearls. You think, was he's kissing him on the lip? Like, what kind of kiss is that? The sages are, are, are describing when you're trying to get at the deepest recesses of a person's soul. I'm so close to you. Maybe you hid your gems in your mouth, meaning they're only for the people, like, not just in your inner circle, the innermost of your inner circle. And I'm going to give you a kiss to say, I'm in that circle too. The Meral says an amazing thing. When we discuss how Hashem gave us the Torah, there's a language the sages often use, not just the sages, but Tanakh, use the language of the way that Hashem gave us the Torah. Listen to these two psukim that describe how it was given to us. <clears throat> when Ki Hashem yitain chachma mipiv. Hashem gave us his wisdom from his mouth. So the Lord points out, why, why is that the way the Navi describes Hashem giving us from his mouth? Because that which comes out of the mouth is the deepest secrets. That which is reserved, it's not, it's not for everybody to see. It's not even in a pocket on the outside, just I'm hiding it from some people. It's literally, it's in my mouth. I only give this chachma to the people that I am most near and dear and special to. Shir Hashirim. How does Shir Hashirim begin? Yinashkenu minishikos piu. Kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. The love song between Hashem and the Jewish people begin with the description of we're so close. We have a relationship unlike anything else. Nashkenu minishikos piu. Kiss me with the kisses of your mouth because that's where it comes from. It's so private. It's just between me and between you. It's between Hashem and the Jewish people. That's the dynamic. That's the relationship. That's the form of wisdom that Hashem gave us in His Torah. And that's what's represented when the sages, when the sages say, yeah, love is looking for money. Maybe he hid it in his mouth. I'm going to give him a kiss. Not just, I'm searching for it. I want, I want you, Yaakov, to know we're that close. You can tell me. 
Yaakov says, sorry, I know we're close, Uncle Lavan. I really don't have anything for you. But the language that the sages are using here is a progression of three different levels of how we project. Do we project like camels? I want everybody to know everything about me. I have it in my pocket, just closer to my chest. It's hidden. There are those who know, but not everyone. Or is it in my mouth, which means it's really, this is a part of who I am, and I only share that with those who I am most close with. And Lavan went to see. Nope, didn't do that. Went to hug to say, we're pretty close, let me in. Nope. I'll give you a kiss. I'm really close to you. And Lach Yaakov says, I, yeah, you can do all these things. I, don't ha- I really don't have anything for you. But the, the, just the depth of what the morale explains of what Chazal are saying in terms of the hug and the kiss and the going to look at is very much related to how what we have, both in terms of all the resources that we have, the knowledge that we have, which, and some things are good to be like a camel, it's, it's there for everyone. Some things are a little bit more private. We walk humbly before Hashem. Not everybody needs to see or know everything. And then there are different circles. The, the inner circle, the inner innermost circle, as to what people know and what people don't know, in terms of that, and then their depth of relationship, as we, we spoke about once before, the closer we are with someone, the more we expect to know about their life. That's part of what it means. As we have a relationship, like Avram is going to tell his friends, because we have a relationship, that's what we spoke about. I, I, I tell people things that I'm, I'm, people I'm close with, um, is what Yaakov, and lo, what Lovin here came to try to get from Yaakov. The reality, of course, he gets nothing out of him, puts Yaakov to work, and that's the rest of the story, which we'll have to address, uh, of course, uh, Another year, future years. Okay, those are the two reactions of this dramatic first scene in which Yaakov cries upon seeing Rachel, not having, knowing that they won't be buried together and not having anything to give her, and then Lavan coming after the money and trying to get something out of Yaakov with his running, his hugging, and his kissing, and of course, having nothing but saying, no, what can I do? I'll bring you home anyway. And then the story continues. Again, in future years, we'll, we'll work through the switch between Rachel and Leah, and how he worked, and the dream. There are lots of things to talk about, but uh, we'll start with this. Having a, wishing everybody a wonderful day. It's great to be back on track, and Mr. Shem will pick up again uh, next week.